Happy New Year. Hope you've all had a wonderful Christmas. Yes. And that lovely bit in between for Christmas and New Year where you can do what you like. <laughs> <laughs> if you're lucky. Yes. Today we've got a special episode of little snippets from our Patreon episodes. Yes, we thought you'd like to know what we've been talking about on the other side. Yes. You'll be hearing Isabella of Castile, yes. Leonardo da Vinci. Yes. Giovanni Pico della Marandola. Yes. Sultan Mehmet. Yes, of the Ottoman Empire. Of the Ottoman Empire. And Katerina Sforza. Yes. And we should note that while there are only a few people, each one of them is getting three or four episodes that are about two hours each. We go seriously in depth. <laughs> yes, we do it every two months and we thought, oh, well, it, well, it won't take long. It's every two months. It takes ages because that's so damn long. <laughs> yes, because we want to include everything. And half the time, because we're discussing people that are outside of England but are still active during this time period, we feel like we have to give more so that you have context. Yes. Without context, they're living in a vacuum and it doesn't make sense. So we go really in-depth and so far, it's been really well received. Hmm. And mm -hmm. enjoyable for us, because we get to see more in depth. In, yes. Well, particularly Italy for me. <laughs> and it's insane how much of that web brings you back into England. Yes. Everybody seemed to know everybody, if anybody's had anything written about them. Yes. Yeah. And Patreons will get to vote for who they want out of, out of a list of four. Yes, if you're a merchant or above. So if you join as a merchant, you get to vote. If you join as a noble, you get to suggest people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we have a Discord server that people we are welcome to come and chat with us. I'm on there every time I'm editing. Which is all the time at the <laughs> Which moment. Which is all the time. <laughs> so if that, if any, if you, uh, <laughs> that, that what I said anyway. <laughs> If you're interested in any of those people, or even if you're not, I'm sure you will be when you listen to it, come on over to Patreon and join. Yes. Join us. Join We'd us. We'd love for you to join <laughs> us. We like having people chat with us all the time. Yes. <laughs> now we'll hand you over to Isabella of Castile. Yes. Enjoy. We've got such a big list. <laughs> it just keeps getting bigger. <laughs> The history of the peninsula specifically was war between the Muslim and the Catholic monarchs. There is no way we can get away from that. It went on for centuries. Hmm. It was the Muslim invasion that forced the crown and the church in Castile to be closer in both cooperation and power than any other European country, including Aragon, because Castile had more of a conflict with them. Well, I suppose they got more of a more of a border. Yes. Yes. Mm. It was this strong political relationship that ended up being integral in pushing the Muslims back out of the Iberian Peninsula. They had at one point controlled almost the entirety of the peninsula. One of Isabella's antecedents, and I'm sorry, I think I understand how to say this, it's Palayo. That might have been it, or it could be Palayo. Mm -hmm. But Google says Palayo. So he was the king that began to claw back the land from the Muslims. 
and his descendants continued to reconquer the peninsula. And Isabella was keenly aware of their accomplishments. Mm. So aware that she commissioned a history of Spain, including the invasion and the takeover of the Muslims and the reconquering by her ancestors so that none of her children would ever forget what their responsibilities were to the Catholic Church. All right. I feel that her children had a lot of responsibility. Yeah, Yeah, she had some pretty high demands for her poor kids. She really did. (laughs) But when we go over her life, you might understand why she thought that they were capable of it. Hmm. Okay. This, the church was so important to Isabella that her actual first official act that is recorded is being a child. So I don't have an exact date. I couldn't find a date. But it was between the ages of four and six that she decided to give her own money towards an unsuccessful retaking of Granada. So she's that young, and it's already been Hmm. stressed to her that the biggest, most important thing she could do is to remove the Muslims so that the Catholic Church could be supreme on the peninsula. Yes, that's... Sort of nice, isn't it, I suppose. Yes. I was just thinking, yeah, I mean, often you get little children who give their pocket money to beggars. Mm-hmm. And think, well, that's lovely. And this should be nice, but she's giving, giving her money to a war against another religion. Yeah, and to kill them. Lovely. Mm. Yeah, diff- different times. <laughs> I was thinking, we've got, we've got a radio station in England called 4Extra, and they, they do archive um, comedies and dramas and things and quite often they put a proviso at the beginning to say and this the following program contains attitudes and opinions that were acceptable at the time yes and you think well that's probably only 40 50 years ago they're talking about <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and things have changed so much since then and now we're talking about 600 years yeah. It's not surprising that we find it hard to get into the heads of some of these people. No, we are probably going to have a difficult time with Isabella's point of view. Mm. So we've, we've got to put the proviso that yes. her attitudes and opinions are not were acceptable own. at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and they were acceptable at the time, which I find just shocking in some ways that everybody was so willing to go along with some of them. Mm. I'm sure people look back at us and think that. Mm-hmm. I hope so, really, because that implies that we're getting better, nicer. Mm. Yeah, I hope so. Mm. First of all, I want you to brace yourself. Okay. Okay. Hold on to your desk. Oh, no. You're in for a shock. Oh, no. <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci was a very nice man. I'm not sure I believe you. <laughs> Everybody we've talked about, I'm not sure I believe you. Vasari, who wrote The Lives of the Artists, said, quote, He was a man of outstanding beauty and infinite grace. He was striking and handsome, and his great presence brought comfort to troubled souls. His disposition was so lovable that he commanded everyone's affections. Aww. There, you just said you wanted a nice one. Yes, I'm bringing I did. you a nice one. <laughs> Yeah. And by yeah, by all accounts he was a nice person to be around. People went to him when they had a problem. Not Aww. just a technical one, but a personal one. Aww. And you'll like this. 
If he came across a bird market, he'd buy all the birds and let them go. Oh, okay, I like him. See? Yes, I knew you just this just the person you were asking. Yes, for. two seconds ago. <laughs> yes. We need somebody nice. <laughs> I didn't come across one person who didn't like them, apart maybe from his half siblings, with whom he got embroiled in a lawsuit. Oh well, that's. I think he. I think he was in the right. Okay, but we'll come to that later. Okay. And admittedly, people were exasperated by him. Mm-hmm. That was to do with his working habits. He's going over deadlines and not finishing. Oh, yes. But apart from that, Leonardo was described as beautiful in person and aspect, long hair, long eyelashes, a very long beard and true nobility. Vasari said he could straighten horseshoes with his bare hands. Hmm. Well, if he was sculpting... And we don't know the content of horseshoes back then. No, and also, he apparently also climbed mountains and contended with terrible bears. Oh, okay. <laughs> From an early age, he was seemed to be extremely intelligent and have prodigious powers of memory. As a former, a, a recent former Italian president, uh, Giorgio Napolitano, because they do get through them quite quickly in Italy, don't they? <laughs> was being asked in court recently about something that happened 20 years before. He replied, do you think I have a memory like Pico della Mirandola? Really? Yeah. But he was a child prodigy, as can be seen by picture number two. Picture number two. Aww. <laughs> there he is. For some reason, he's not got any clothes on. But That's uh, adorable. Oh, and they made him look like the thinker. Yes. He's got one foot propped up on the other knee. He's yeah. a little naked baby, obviously completely engrossed in his Latin. Yes, with his little finger on his lips thinking, hmm. He's, what, just over a year, do you think? 18 months, maybe, in that picture. It's hard to tell because they did babies so strange. Because that yes. face almost looks like they took an older child. Mm. But they did the chubby little legs really well. Yeah, he, he's about the best baby I've come across. It's certainly better than Leonardo's babies. Mm-hmm. But I strongly suspect that he wasn't quite that young when he was busily reading with his mum. I don't think so. Oh, yeah, she's holding a book. You're right. Yeah. He's reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that. No, it's a very stinky little picture, but though I don't, I don't think they're... I think they're making a point. Mm. It, does seem to his, it does seem to have been his mother who recognised his brilliance and encouraged it. Apparently he could recite Dante's Divine Comedy backwards and not... In the way that, you know, you say, oh, I, could, I know that backwards. Yeah. He knew, he knew it backwards. Backwards. Yeah. He could, start, he could recite it starting with the last line of the Paradiso and going back to the first line of the Inferno. But I'm not quite sure whether it was word for word. Backwards or, or line whether for all, line. all the words backwards as well. In which case it would be complete gibberish and nobody would know whether it was doing it or not. Anyway. I'm not sure how helpful that was, but it's pretty amazing. I mean, just to know all of Dante would be amazing, but to know it backwards. He was also a bit of a looker. At this age? He's cute. Uh, No, he's a bit bit older now. (laughs) He had an aristocratic bearing. He was six foot tall in his socks and quite solidly built. Uh, I don't mean chubby, I mean sturdy. Um, Muscular. Muscular. He had green eyes and wavy chestnut hair that wafted down to his shoulders. And you can see how stunning he was from picture number three. Picture number three. I don't see the stunning. It's a bit of a disappointment, isn't it? Yes. 
quite a disappointment. The hat does not help. Which also allowed Mehmed to close off that side of his battles and turn entirely to the west. And of course, Venice is the stumbling block. <laughs> and you have ticked mm. us off. Venice had fortresses in Albania and along the coast of the Adriatic, preventing Mehmed from seriously advancing seaward. King Matthias Corvinus of Hungary had also had time to regain strength while Mehmed was otherwise occupied. They took advantage of this. So the Ottomans again had to invade Albania. Venice, hearing of the invasion, sent another fleet to aid their holdings in Albania. This time, and we're going to see this more often, the Ottomans were beaten back. And Mehmed decided to increase the size of his forces and his fleet again. Venice, discovering Mehmed is increasing his forces, finally managed to make an alliance with Florence and Milan against the Ottomans. Yes, they finally figured it out. <laughs> we are now 20 years into this, and they finally figure it out. Well, over what, 20 years. What year are we in? 1470-something. All right. 1479. All right. <laughs> Does it work, though? Pope Sixtus then decided that this alliance was mm -hmm. a direct challenge to his power. <laughs> you can't have an alliance. Oh, for goodness sake. I know. <laughs> I almost threw my Kindle across the room <laughs> when I got to that sentence when he was, he was enraged. How dare you do this without my permission? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. He now has absolutely nothing in the East to keep him distracted. He is coming and you're going to stand on your high horse <laughs> and let everybody die. Good yeah. job. So not only does he refuse to join, instead he forms a separate alliance with Naples to defend against the other Italian alliance. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and they start off on a military footing. They start building military. They're just not getting it. I started thinking of that meme on the internet of Jackie Chan sharing out his hair with the bleep face. <laughs> I've not seen that. Have you? You've not seen it? Okay. No. I gotta find that right. for you then. Okay. Am I the only person that's not seen it? <laughs> What's he doing? What the bleep? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's pretty much what was going through my head. I think. <laughs> but in some ways it is. But in other ways, I think we've done enough about Italy now to to think. Oh, well, it was inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> we know how dumb they were. <laughs> Italian politics, and it's all to do with salt. Venice had pretty much cornered the very, very lucrative market in salt. Okay. Ferrari decided that they would extract salt in an area that they leased from Venice. Venice said, you can't do that, and we're going to stop you. Okay. Ferrara said, yeah, you and whose army? Oh, that, that one. That, that army. army. <laughs> yes. And the upshot was that Ferrara, Milan and Florence were on one side, Venice and Genoa on the other. So Ercole d'Este's father-in-law, Ferrante of Naples, sent his son Alfonso, who started coming up from Naples. And his troops were fresh from freeing Otranto from the Turks. Ooh. Yeah. As we saw in Leonardo's episode, Alfonso asked the Pope if he could cross the Papal States. Yes. 
And he was 99% sure that the Pope would let him, since when Pope Sixtus had called for people to save Otranto, he... Alfonso was the only one who'd gone. Yes, and was successful. Yes, but the Pope said no. What? Why? Well, I'm not entirely sure why, except that he probably didn't want a Neapolitan army just In... outside the gates ah. of Rome. Ah. So Alfonso did what anyone would have done in the circumstances. Went anyway. He... He went anyway, and he devastated papal lands on the way. Oh. You know, we could have done this nicely, but you chose the other way. <laughs> so now this meant that Rome had to be protected from Naples. Yes. <laughs> Everybody makes the wrong decisions Everybody. in this. Yeah. The Roman army was mustered. But that's okay, because they have a captain of the papal armies who is exceptionally brave and strong and talented. It's Girolamo Riario. Seriously? A man who, prior to his uncle becoming pope, had never wielded a sword in anger. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Yeah, it's good to be the nephew of the pope. That's so dumb. That is so dumb. Julius would have been a better choice. Anybody. Yeah, I mean, Julius loved war. Yes. <laughs> well, Girolamo hovered just outside Rome. Everyone was saying, well, go on, Alfonso's over there. Why are you still here? <sighs> but Girolamo said he was staying close to Rome in case the Romans revolted. There is nothing I like about this man. No, nothing. And there won't be. It's not, it's not as if he has a, a sudden change of heart and becomes Father Christmas or anything. He's, no. Nobody was the slightest bit taken in by Girolamo and openly called him a coward. Yeah. He spent his time playing dice on the high altar of the cathedral with his soldiers. Oh, my goodness. Gambling away all the money the Pope had given him to fight the battle. Oh, my goodness. In a church. In the cathedral, yeah. Soon he had nothing left to pay the troops, so they took to looting. Oh, no. Caterina went into religious overdrive trying to make amends for her husband's behaviour. Yeah. She fasted until she became painfully thin. Uh -oh. Luckily, I don't think she's pregnant at this time. She prayed. She gave alms to the poor. She wore very simple clothes of a penitent. Oh. She was just incredibly embarrassed about him, I should think, and ashamed. No kidding. Well, the standoff couldn't go on forever, so the Pope brought in mercenary reinforcements from Venice. And the two sides met at Campo Morto, the field of death. Oh, that doesn't sound good. Well, it already was the field of death because it's malarial. That's why it's already ah. got the death. Yeah. They fought from 4pm, that's tea time, to 11pm, which is bedtime. <laughs> and it was an extremely vicious battle because we've heard how Italian battles were stately pavans before Charles VIII and the French arrived. This one wasn't. Okay. Anyway, to cut a long and bloody story short, the papal troops won or at least the Venetian mercenaries did. 2,000 men lay dead on the field. More died of malaria. Girolamo was also lying in the field. He wasn't dead. He was dead drunk. Oh, my God. When they found him, he was completely drunk. And he'd stayed behind, he said, quote, to guard the tents, unquote. What a loser. You are a loser, that's what someone might do at a festival. You don't do it in a battle. No, you don't. <laughs> when you're meant to be leading the troops. And yet, he still tried to take credit for the victory. What? 
And there was an outcry, so the Pope had to give the accolade to Malatesta, the, who'd led the Venetian troops. Good! But just over a week after Malatesta had entered Rome in triumph, he died of dysentery. Or did he? I doubt it. Needless to say, many thought he'd been poisoned by Girolamo, who bore a grudge at not having been given the triumph himself. Oh, that man. When does he get stabby-stabby? Because I really need him out of the story. Not till next episode, I'm afraid. Oh, he's going to stay that long? Yep. That's not right.